disciples. And maybe that's why counseling has become quite a big part of my ministry at WBC, at Westville Baptist. It's an area that at times I've absolutely loved. To be able to play a real part in the healing of the marriage or helping someone in the name of Christ to find a viable way forward in a crisis or in a, in a time of trauma is for me one of the most incredible areas of my ministry. I can be honest, and I think I've mentioned this before, to say that it often feels in those moments like I'm walking on holy ground as people take the very, very courageous step to share massive parts of their life, sometimes massive parts of their broken life with me in my office or with me and my wife in my office. It's humbling stuff to be part of those moments. It's it's a privilege to be open to those kinds of moments, to share those moments with people. There are moments that are genuinely full of God moments. Experience God richly there. I've loved this part of ministry, but as I'm sure you'd also understand, it can also be a very tough part when, when I have to front up, when I have a front row to a person's life who, whom I find I'm unable to help. You know, people have come to me and they've put their hand out for help and for whatever reason I feel like I've got very little to give back to them. Those are tough moments. Maybe the issue that they're grappling with, as, as is often the case, is above my training or above my gifting levels. You know, I can't see to the heart of the real issues. Possibly, even if I can see something of the problem, I don't have the answers or the solutions that could, you know, set the person free. Will give them a new, give them a way forward in the pain that they're experiencing. And as I say, those are horrible. They, they're quite unnerving moments. And I battle with that sense of helplessness in that moment when all I can offer is my presence and my prayers, which is often all I can offer. And which isn't to say that that isn't nothing, you know, that isn't anything. And so I guess in an attempt to, to avoid those, those tough moments over the years I've taken to reading quite a bit, I go to the people, the books and the articles that are, are that are more gifted in these areas, more knowledgeable, more equipped to deal with these kinds of issues and see what they have to offer and hopefully in turn to offer it to people when I think it may help them. Here's one bit of insight that I found myself returning to again and again and again. It's helped a bunch of people to grapple with some of the not-so-great dynamics of their family of upbringing. And we've all got an element of brokenness about that as well, don't we? Even my kids will speak about their brokenness at some stage. It's helped any number of people to face up to the challenges that, that they're experiencing in marriage. Things that will constantly cripple the potential of their relationship unless these issues are addressed. It's helped me to understand myself. It's helped me to understand my workplace. It's helped me to understand my friendships. It's helped me to understand my church. Even the country I live in. And so I think you get the picture that I, that I think this is, this is an incredible bit of insight of wisdom that I'm about to share with you. Let me explain. The word dysfunctional obviously describes something that isn't functioning well. Therefore, dysfunctional. And so a flat tire, you know, a clock without an hour hand, obviously we're not talking digital clocks here, 
a chair that collapses with any weight that is put on it, a pastor that preaches for more than 35 minutes, I reckon most of us would absolutely agree that these things are dysfunctional, broken. There's something fundamentally flawed about the existence. They're not performing what they're designed to do. Claudia Black, in her book, It Will Never Happen to Me, says that when it comes to dysfunctional families, they follow one of three rules, or more, one or, or more than one of three rules. And so when families are not functioning as they should, we'd probably find that they committed to one or more of these rules. The three rules are as follows. Don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Depending on how much a family or marriage or friendship invests in any one of those destructive rules will determine to a large extent the levels of dysfunction that they as a family will experience in the years as they come and go. Any of those rules has incredible potential to absolutely cripple any relationship. I want you to imagine now... what a church would look like that was committed to those rules. What does a church look like that doesn't talk, that doesn't trust, that doesn't feel? I suspect that is the horror picture that the head of our church looks on every single day of our existence. He looks at the church worldwide and wonders why we're so embarrassed to speak out and to the issues that are real in our lives and that dominate this world, his world, his creation. Why the silence? He wonders at the silence that we prefer when sin and injustice prevail in our communities, amongst our friends and our families. In those same zones of friends and families, why silence, he might ask, when we have the greatest, most epic news of grace and love and redemption that this world could ever hear? Why silence? What's so appropriate about silence? He wonders why we cherish that false peace, the Sunday face we put on that says everything's okay. When vulnerability and honesty and openness were part and parcel of the kind of spirituality that Jesus lived amongst us, he entrusted himself into the hands of his friends around him. I suspect he shakes his head at the privacy we wrap around our lives. You know, there are some people here that are absolutely committed to privacy in a way that is totally destructive. When it's clearly stated in Scripture that love always trusts in the context of church. Love always trusts. I imagine he wonders at those that reduce worship and doctrine and belief and Christianity as a whole to a passionless, emotionless exercise of the mind with no feeling. I wonder how he feels about Christians whose only expressed emotion seems to be anger and to be frank, lovelessness. This is the church our Lord observes every day of our existence. It is a dysfunctional family. 
And I suspect in many senses it's not a pleasant picture, and yet he chooses, Christ chooses to love us. In our brokenness, in our dysfunction, with an undying, uncompromised, always hopeful love, and because that is who our God is. A gracious, incredible God. And that is why we will always love Him. And that is why we will always return to Him. I want to come more directly to Scripture now. There's a character in the Bible that I've loved for many years now. And there are a lot of fine print characters. We're in the last of this series, the people of the fine print. A lot of fine print characters that are lovable in the Bible. Um, remember the 10th leper? The one that came back to say thank you for his healing. Of the 10 that was healed, one returned. He's on his way to his buddies. He's on his way to his family to say, yes, I'm healed. I can feel the health, you know, pumping through my veins. He stops in his track and he says, no, there's something more important to do. I must return to Jesus and say thank you for this gift. He stops and he says, that's the priority in this moment. As much as it is to share the health and the healing with my friends, I've actually got to return to Jesus. What a, what a legend. What wisdom for someone to say, this gift that I have, I've got to go to Christ first and celebrate it there before I celebrate anywhere else. How about those four nameless friends that dropped that guy through the roof? You know, into the presence of Jesus. What absolute legends. Yeah, forget propriety. Forget what is proper. I don't think there's anything proper about breaking the roof to get a friend into the presence of Jesus. Forget propriety. I mean, there's rules of propriety in our church, isn't there? There's things that are proper. That if someone had to break it and had to come say, for instance, dance up front, let's let, you know, write a letter to the elders because that's improper. These guys, the four friends said, forget propriety. Let's just get my friend to Jesus. You've got to love those guys. You've got to love that passion. And there are a ton, ton of these characters, but my favorite fine print character is a guy named Onesiphorus. Five syllables, which is why I guess no one here is named Onesiphorus. He's mentioned twice in the Bible, both in the second letter of Timothy, but it's the first passage that tells us the most about, about this guy. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 16 to 18. Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is what he says. Apostle Paul, that mega saint of the church. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me, and he wasn't ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. I love this guy. I love this guy. This quiet, understated, probably fringe character in the church, a background guy. I love him because he is the absolute antithesis to those dysfunctional rules that sometimes dominate churches. I love this guy because people, he and people like him are the antidote to so many dysfunction in that church of ours. Their presence and calling breathes health and wholeness and godliness into the most fundamental level of our church. 
I love this guy because although he never walked on water, although as far as we know, he never preached a mind-blowing, fantastic sermon, you know, I love him because he simply, the gift that he brought was simply that he pitched up to care for and support someone that needed his love. He pitched up. His whole contribution to the early church and the reason that is mentioned for every generation of Christianity to be here about is because he embodied that verse that says, people would know we are Christians, how by our love. That is who Onesiphorus is. His name has a very interesting meaning. It means prophet bringer. Not as in prophet, the guy speaks the words of God, but prophet as in cash. Prophet bringer. That's what his name means. And if you can imagine mom and dad gazing down at their new little adorable son in his crib, crib and, the, and their mind goes to the point of, of the kind of heritage that they would hope that this little life would leave throughout history. You know? This kid, they reckon will be the accountant of the family, or the, you know, maybe even a tax collector. Let's name him Prophet Bringer, so that hopefully he will become rich and wealthy, and we'll cash in on that deal at some point in our retirement. Let's be honest, parents. We hope for that sometimes, eh? But without missing a beat, the boy grows up into a man, and he lives up to the claims of his name by bringing a wealth of love and support to those that desperately need it. There was a prophet that he brought. Paul says also, he describes that wealth, he describes it as, as, as a guy that often refreshed him. What a beautiful description of someone. I want you to just think for a moment, who is like that for you? Who refreshes you? Who regularly leads you or has often led you to a new and fresh view of yourself or the world that you live in? Who takes you away from the stale, horrific, and sometimes fearful side of life and says, no, 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 look, here's where the beauty is. Here's where you can find God in who you are or in this world of ours. Who does that for you? Who's able to discover with you the presence and purpose of God in your life in a way that you just naturally tended to overlook? Folk, it's an incredible thing to find someone like that. And so I married her. I know I'm biased, but time and again, my wife's unwavering faith has refreshed my perspective on this world and my God. Her faith at times has this cleansing quality about it that feels like a cool shower on a hot day. On a hot day. Folk, find those people. To be in their presence often, they are a gem, they're a gift from God that is of great worth, and that is who Nesiphorus was to Paul. Paul also says he was not ashamed of my chains. That's an important little statement. Understand, Paul is in jail here as he's penning this letter. I want you to think about what would happen to a friendship of yours if someone close to you ended up in Westville prison for a period of six years, five, six years. Just to give you a sense of this kind of loyalty. It's a type of loyalty that is able to look past the things that embarrassed his other friends. Two other guys are mentioned just before this passage, a guy named Phagelus and Hermogenes. Like the rest of the Ephesian church, they lumped with the whole of the Asian church. And they are described as having deserted Paul in his time of need. 
And Onesiphorus stands on the other end and says, no, he was loyal. Good chance these other two guys, Phagelus and Hermogenes, were embarrassed. You see, Paul's massive influence, the great pull, the great voice that he had in the early church, had basically been reduced to the four walls of his prison cell. He had lost his pulpit. He had lost his congregation. He had lost massive parts of his reputation. He now looked little little more than a powerless has-been, pretty much a nobody. And so it made sense for these two other guys to move on, to align themselves with someone that had a little bit more successful story about them so that they could benefit a lot more from the successful types. Not for an Onesiphorus, though. He stuck with Paul. It's the kind of loyalty that challenges me. What will it take for me to turn away from a good friend of mine, from someone that God has placed in my life? Would it take their moral failure for me to turn my back on them? Maybe a disagreement, a fundamental doctrinal disagreement, maybe repeated rejection from the other person, yeah? or, or terminal illness, or divorce, or economic ruin. What will it take for me to say, I'm out of here? Well, for Nisiphorus, he knew that God still had a plan in his relationship with Paul, and until that changed, he would stick around. Paul also says, he searched hard for me until he found me. Another very interesting little phrase. Paul says, Onesiphorus searched hard for me until he found me. And I suspect that refers to the fact that Paul was possibly lost in the Roman prison system, um, rotting away in some unknown, dingy little location. location. But his friends searched hard until Paul was found. Again, there's something so impressive about a friend like that. Yeah, we can get lost in our sin. Every single one of us can. In our ignorance, in our own sense of inadequacies, in our, in our fearfulness, in our anxieties, in our stubbornness, we can get lost to a point that we simply cannot find our own way out. And in those desperate, in those depressive moments, to have someone that searches for us, and finally finds us and possibly helps us to find ourselves in the process again. It's a beautiful thing. Folk in a world where the church is known to underfunction in so many ways, we desperately need people like this guy filling our pews. People who bring to us the healing and the awesome presence of Jesus. The support and encouragement that Jesus wants to bring to us just by them being in the room. Because let's be honest, that's what this is about, isn't it? Essentially, an encounter with a guy like Anisiphorus is like an encounter with a gift from the Lord. An encounter with God. That's why we desperately need people like that in our midst. Paul wrote letters, we know. He led churches. He led church meetings. He strategized the start of the church as we know it. He brought Jesus to anyone that would listen from his pulpit. Onesiphorus brought God's kingdom into, God, into people's lives, but he did it in such a different way. He brought a meal. He gave a blanket to Paul. He stood at a prison door and kind of leaned through that little gap and spoke encouragement and refreshment to Paul. 
he searched despite the challenges until he found who God had laid on his heart. And he spoke hope and perspective into Paul. He refreshed his soul. In this kind of person, we find the fingerprints of God still working and loving and redeeming this broken, hurting world of ours. Just as a quick side note though, I, don't, I think it's important to note that this kind of care that Anisiphorus lived and embodied is not WhatsApp message kind of care. It's a very different thing to that, isn't it? For some people, sending a WhatsApp message nowadays is enough, or Facebook message. Yeah? And at times, let's be honest, it is enough. But today we need to be reminded and we need to settle the fact that at other times that isn't enough of a response. At times in order to care appropriately, we need to get into the personal space of somebody. To shake their hand, to wipe their tears, to provide a generous gift, to stand at their bedside potentially. To fill a gap, to lay a hand on their shoulder, to invite them into our home. Any number of verses in Scripture make this kind of care clear. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you're already doing. Galatians 6 verse 2, Carry one another's burdens. In this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10 24, Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. 1 Peter 4 verse 9, Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. So what does a functional church look like? Yes, that's a massive question. It's a massive question. So many different answers to that question. What does a functional church look like? But one of the answers that we'd need to accept as true, and one that I'd long for our church to accept as true, is the fact that keeping others at a distance at our church, or settling with the fact that those in our church will always just be an anonymous group of people with unnamed issues that preferably they must handle in the quietness of their own lives, that is never, ever, ever a picture of Christ's church. And the kind of connections He wants us to share one with another. Concern, a real interest in someone else's well-being, empathy, that, that ability to feel something of another person's pain, kindness, an impulse to reach out and help, generosity, the willingness to give of what we have to someone that needs what we have. selflessness, a love, a cross kind of love that fully believe that it's not always about my comfort, my gender, my well-being, my security, me, myself, and I. These are the things that we see in bucket loads in Jesus' life. These are the things we see as an echo in Anisiphorus' life. These are the things we have to see and experience in our church. These are the things that we need to feel pulsing through our veins as followers of Christ. 
Look, as you heard a few weeks ago, John mentioned that I'm now a pastor in charge of care in our church. Let me be frank with you. I need your help to achieve that. For this church to become an increasingly caring church, I need your help to achieve that. I'm not much of a mathematician, you know. But if you can do the maths, you'll work out that I could not care enough for this church to be a caring church. We need people to step up to the mark. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to finish off with just two requests. If we do see this as something that's worthwhile in our church, firstly, can I encourage you to be a Nisiphorus to someone this week? Be be a Nisiphorus to someone this week. In your circle of friends, maybe amongst your family, maybe even to a stranger, be the refresher, be the supporter. In whatever way, shape, or form that God has made you, be the one that draws alongside someone this week in such a way that they might just think God has arrived in my life. Second request, I want you to think about helping to bring the love of Christ to the people in our church more effectively. To your family, your spiritual family that sits around you. Don't look now, but the person that's sitting three seats next to you. Don't look because it's going to get awkward. It's either a brother or sister of yours in Christ. At times that person needs your support and help, not your anonymous WhatsApp care message. So one of the things that I've done so that we as a church can care more effectively for each other in our church is I've basically, and you'll see a little handout in your your, um, bulletins, so I've basically constructed five, five areas of care, teams of care that I'd like to get up and running. And um, they're areas of care that, that are very practical. Let me just say, these five teams, there's nothing glorious about them. Okay, nothing glorious about them. They will be backstage. The person that you minister to, Our Lord, these are the people that will give you recognition for stepping into these zones. But make no mistake, as we step into these zones, God's kingdom comes in the lives of people. So the five different areas, maybe you'd like to open your home. Let me just tell you a quick story, two stories about this one. I won't go into the details for the rest. A couple of years ago, probably about a decade and a half ago, 15 years ago, I went to Swaziland. This is one of my most embarrassing moments in Westville Baptist Church. We went to Swaziland. There were, it was a massive group of missionaries. There were about 30 of us that arrived in Swaziland to go minister to the people in Swaziland. And um, the incredible thing is that the, the, the families in the area said, listen, don't worry about bringing mattresses because that's a big thing. Bringing mat- 30 mattresses across in a car is difficult. Said, so don't worry, we'll give up our mattresses for you guys to sleep in. Incredible gift. So we, we had these mattresses to sleep on in, in Swaziland. About seven months later, ten of them came to Westville. We couldn't find enough houses to house ten people. Yes, how the heck does that happen? Embarrassing. 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 I can't describe it any other way. You know, there's another story, much better story. We, we had a, a guy named Gideon live in our church, in our house. So if you remember the Malavuke conference that happened last, I think it was last year, a guy named Gideon, random pastor 
from somewhere in, in, in North KZN. Um, we don't know who the guy was. Invited him into our, our house. And I can honestly say our experience of spending some time with Gideon in our home was, in my opinion, the closest I've ever met to someone who is like Jesus Christ. The most gentle, sincere, godly kind of guy. Which is not to say that you guys aren't, but he really was. Okay, That's the kind of thing that happens when we step into a zone that God is calling to us. So maybe it's a matter of opening your home, maximum three nights. Maybe it's cooking a meal. If you've ever lost someone, you know that trying to grapple with the grief that comes after losing someone, trying to grapple with the, the administration of trying to get a funeral off the ground. Yes, that is hectic stuff. Someone just providing a meal in that time can be such a helpful thing. Make contact. I want people to phone through our church lists to say, how are you doing? Can we pray with you? What's your needs at the moment? Going for a visit. There are people that simply cannot come to church anymore. Sometimes for long periods of time, they're so sick. Maybe they're elderly. And maybe this is probably going to be the tough one, but I'm asking folk to consider just making yourself available once a month to go and visit people that are, are stuck at home in bed and then provide financial advice. Here, Kelly, financial advice, not financial relief. There's some people that are wise in these things. I'm not that kind of guy, but wise in being able to handle advice when it comes to finances. Look, we come to church to encounter God. That's why we're here today. Fact is, we can take God into people's lives, into people's homes, alongside their beds, if we are like a Nesiphorus, hearing that calling of God in our lives. My simple request is for you to hear that, that maybe God is calling you in terms of your gifting to step up to that mark. If you're going to tick that off, please won't you just put a put that little notice sheet up on the, uh, at the info desk afterwards. Thank you so much. God bless. <clears throat>